You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3 this morning. We are in the the process of studying verses uh, 21 through 26 together. We've been talking about the doctrine of justification and uh, or if you want to put it even plainer, uh, how a man or a woman becomes right with God. How does a person become right with God? And uh, obviously this is an important teaching. Uh, Thomas Cranmer described justification as the strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. Another Puritan, uh, Thomas Watson, wrote, justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. So, uh, in other words, it's really important that we get this right. We understand uh, our salvation. And uh, we've already noted that it's by grace alone. And uh, today we're going to see how it is of Christ alone that we are saved. Romans 3, 23 or 21 begins this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, please help us now. The power of Your Spirit as we hold our words in Your lap. In our laps, Lord, that uh, as we hear it, uh, these words might be planted deeply into our hearts and lives, that your word might do its work in us, transforming us, changing us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, calling sinners to come to Christ as their Savior. Uh, Do that work, we pray. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses here in Romans have been uh, instrumental in in leading many people to come to know Christ as their uh, Lord and Savior. William Cowper uh, was uh, one such person. Uh, Cowper was an 18th century poet who uh, authored several of our beloved hymns that we still uh, sing uh, even today. Uh, But he had a difficult start in his life. He was, uh, his mother died when he was only six years old. He was uh, sent off to a boarding school where because he was of of small stature, he was kind of bullied and mistreated by some of the older kids. And it really had some profound uh, impact on his life. Even in his college years, uh, the struggles continued. In 1756, at the age of 25, he was committed to a private asylum uh, he came under the care of uh, a, a man named uh, Cotton, Dr. Cotton. And Dr. Cotton was a devout believer in Jesus Christ. And uh, through his uh, care and efforts, he kind of brought uh, Cowper out of his depression and introduced Christ to him. 
And uh, here's how Kuiper, uh, Cowper describes it. He says, The happy period which was to shake off my fetters and afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ Jesus was now arrived. I flung myself into a chair near the window and seeing a Bible there, ventured once more to apply it for comfort and instruction. The first verses I saw were in the third chapter of Romans. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. He says, immediately I receive strength to believe. And the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement Christ had made, my pardon in His blood, and the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel, he said. He said afterward he could have died with gratitude and joy. In, in that moment he was utterly transformed. Later on he wrote of his conversion these words as a poet. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And we still sing of it today. As the reality of justification sinks in that God by His grace saves sinners like us, a question arises uh, in the minds of, of, of some, and, and particularly here in Romans it arises, how is it possible that a, a righteous God to declare someone who is unrighteous, righteous, uh, without compromising his own righteousness? Uh, and I know that's a mouthful, but, but think about it for a moment. Turn over to chapter 4, just for a moment. One verse I want you to see that might make it a little clear, because it's really a startling statement that that Paul makes again and, and, and applies to this, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, in which he says that God justifies the wicked. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, that is, believes in, in God, who justifies the ungodly. How can a righteous God simply just justify someone who is ungodly, save them? The question that, that predominates, I, I think, a lot of modern thought and discussion when we think about these deeper things of theology is, is how can a good God send anyone to hell? But, but, but the bigger question is, from the Scriptures and theologically, is how can a holy God allow sinners like you and me into heaven? How can He do that? It's, it's an elementary principle of justice, and, and, and we know this. It's one that's taught in, this, in the Old Testament. Um, but it's simply this, that, that the righteous are justified and the wicked are condemned. And, and we believe that. We, we believe that principle of justice, that an innocent person must be declared uh, innocent and the guilty person must be declared guilty. It's just a, a fundamental a principle of justice. Proverbs 17, 15. Uh, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Uh, God even declares himself in Exodus 23, 7. He says, I will not acquit the wicked. I will not acquit them. He can't do so. You understand that God cannot do that and remain righteous in himself. Imagine if someone hurt you uh, or a loved one and you took it to an earthly judge 
And uh, you were wanting some, uh, some result of justice to come out of this. And the judge just looked at you and said, you know what? Well, this, this guy over here, I, this criminal, I've, I'm just going to let him go. Would you say, wow, what a loving judge. No, you would say, that's a, that's a travesty. What kind of court is this? This is an unjust judge. This is a mockery of justice. How much more true is that of our God? Whom the scriptures just says, who justifies the ungodly. How can that be so? How can God remain righteous and good if he does so? That's what Paul is bringing up here. It would be a travesty, wouldn't it? Except for the cross of Jesus Christ. And you see, we see it right away in that little word, if you're underlining, verse 24, it's the word through. Through. It's an incredibly important word. It means by means of. It means that this salvation is by, by grace, a free gift of God. Uh, it, it, this does not happen, though, as, a, as just the result of a mere statement of God. I mean, when God created the world, he said, uh, 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 let there be light, and, and there, was, there was light just by a statement, right? He just says it. He's so powerful. Um, but salvation, uh, Lord Jones, I think, is right on this, that salvation is not possible in, in that way. It's not just that God says, you're forgiven. It, it, it can't be. Something else is necessary. This is particularly important with those who like to argue again that, that God is simply love. That, that that's all He is. God is love and He's really nothing else. And all He has to do is say that you're forgiven. The very essence, the very message of the New Testament gospel is to show that that is not true. It is not true. God's eternal justice, His righteousness cannot just be set aside and Him just say that, that you're forgiven. Something else has to happen to make forgiveness a possibility for you and for me. It's entirely wrong to think that our Lord came into the world merely to just tell us that He is love and He was going to forgive all of our sins. And the very word through in this text indicates it in an unmistakable manner because it is only through Jesus that this is possible. It is only through His perfect work for you, His perfect life, and His sacrificial death on the cross that makes it possible for us to be forgiven. It's the cross. And so the cross is a vindication of God's character as the holy judge of the universe. It's a vindication because it not only shows us the love of God more graciously than anything else, it also shows us His righteousness and holiness and justice. As Christ is punished there. John Stott puts it like this, without the cross... The justification of the unjust would be un, unjustified. It would be immoral and therefore impossible. The only reason God justifies the wicked is that Christ died for the wicked, having shed his blood and a sacrificial death for sinners. That's what Paul is explaining here in verses 24 through 26. 
And he'll focus on three words that uh, are not so common to us and words that are kind of, kind of being pushed aside because uh, we don't like to think very hard and think about these things deeply and that's a shame. But the three words are this, redemption, propitiation, and demonstration. Uh, redemption, propitiation, and demonstration. And if you're really crafty, you can kind of fill in the blanks already because I've given you the points. Isn't that good? First, in Christ, God has redeemed his people. In Christ, he's redeemed. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Here's the word, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is one of the great New Testament words, a special word that, that you should know as a believer in Christ. It's, it's used ten times in the New Testament, seven of those in Paul's letter. It's uh, actually a, a commercial term. It would have been a common uh, commercial term in that, in that time uh, from the marketplace. It refers to the payment, the payment of a ransom in order to secure the release of one who is held captive by something. And so it could have been used in multiple ways, like a king may have paid a ransom to get one of his precious generals who had been caught in war or battle. He may have paid a ransom for him to be released. It, was, uh, it could have been used for a commoner who would pay a ransom to set a slave free uh, in the marketplace. Uh, so these are common practices. It's, it's a deliverance, a liberation that's affected by the payment of a ransom. But here, Paul applies this term to our salvation, doesn't he? And the work of Christ for us. He, he implies what we already know, what we've already been studying together, that we are captives to sin. Slaves to sin. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 34, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're captive by its power, by its consequences upon us because the wages of sin is death. We, we, we have its guilt on us. We have the condemnation of God. We're facing eternal death. A.W. Pink writes this, The condition of the natural man is far, far worse than he imagines. Man is a fallen creature, totally depraved, with no soundness in him. From the sole of his foot, even into the head, he's completely under the dominion of sin, a bond slave to diverse lusts, so that he cannot cease from sin. We've been enslaved by it. And, and we're unable to pay the price to be free from this. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and offered himself as the ransom price for us. This is the, a beautiful thing. Jesus did not come. He could not give money to save us. He had to give himself as the price for us to be released from the bondage of sin. This is what Jesus himself promised, Matthew 20, verse 28. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, a ransom for many. He did this on the cross, didn't he? First Peter tells us this, very plainly, First Peter 1.18, knowing, he says, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So he didn't ransom us by silver or gold or money. He ransomed us, what? With the precious blood of Christ. That's wonderful, wonderful news. When you came and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he set you free. He, he purchased you out of the bondage and the condemnation of your sin. 
And this has to be one of the greatest wonders of the universe. John Flavel, uh, writing from a long time ago, said, how, how could it be imagined that ever those who owed unto God more than they ever could pay by their own eternal sufferings, those that were under the dreadful curse and condemnation of the law, in power and possession of Satan, the strong man armed, those that were bound with so many chains in their spiritual prison, their understanding bound with ignorance, their wills with obstinacy, their hearts with impenetrable hardness, their affections with a thousand bewitching vanities. For such persons to be set at liberty, notwithstanding all this, is the wonder of wonders and will be deservedly marvelous in the eyes of believers forever. In Christ, we have been redeemed, church. And and what an incentive this is in this moment right here for any sinner, someone who has not trusted Christ, to put their trust in Him today. Right now in this moment, unless you are so blinded by the power of sin and so hardened in your own unbelief and so deceived in the bondage of your own darkness, surely you must hear this and you must open your heart to receive this gift today. Believe on the Son and live. Believe on Him. Do not put it off for one moment. Do it now in this moment. Do it and be free. In Christ Jesus. When we speak of redemption, though, it's not just for, that Jesus paid for our sins. There's another sense of this that's important, is that He paid for us. And so, there's, uh, He purchased us. He bought us with His own blood. And now, through redemption, we belong to Jesus. We now have a new master. We now have a new Lord of our lives. We now have someone that we're following, that we answer to. It's why Paul, uh, speaking to pastors in Acts 20, 28, he exhorted them to care for the church of God, which he obtained. Christ obtained it, his church with his own blood. More familiar to you would be this one, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So now, what should we do? Glorify God, he says, in your body. We now belong to God. And in this new freedom that's been secured for us by Jesus Christ, we now gladly use that to serve Him. Amen? Our, Our new freedom is not a freedom to do whatever we want to do, but rather we are free now to obey God. We are free now to to go forth and serve Him and serve others willingly and joyfully for His glory. And we should set our minds to do that very thing. We praise God with the hymn writer, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever, I am. And now we live for Him. Uh, Secondly, though, in Christ, God has propitiated His wrath Verse 24, in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The important word there, propitiation. When someone asks you later today, what does your pastor preach on in church today? You can say, well, he preached on propitiation. How smart you will sound. And what strange looks you will get 
Propitiation. What? Propitiation. Can I tell you, it's an incredibly important word. It means to, uh, to turn away wrath. That's what it means. To turn away wrath. Uh, to appease wrath. To placate someone who is angry. In other words, if you, you were in your yard this spring or whatever and you did something, you made your neighbor mad and he's angry with you, you would probably, hopefully, take some steps to appease his anger. You know, you might take him some cookies that, that your wife baked, you know, as a, as a peace offering and say, you know, I hope we can patch things up here uh, with this uh, misunderstanding or whatever. You're, when you do that, you're engaged in propitiation, <laughs> turning away of wrath. And in this case, though, again... Paul is talking about the turning away of the wrath of God. Now, this is a bit of a controversial doctrine uh, that we believe as Christians, and, and some people over the years, they've kind of grown more embarrassed about this, and, and, and then when they find out, well, like this, this is what we believe in the gospel, this is what the New Testament teaches, they're shocked about this truth, but it's true. That God is angry with sinners. He's angry with sin, and he needs to be appeased in his, appeased in his wrath. This is exactly what Paul means. It's, it's not, it's unmistakable in the text. He's been telling us this since chapter 1 verse 18, hasn't he? He's, he told us the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. God has every right, and, 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 is, and more so, He is just and right to be angry about sin in your life and mine. And where there is divine wrath and anger because of that, it ought to be of concern to us of how we might and should avert that wrath. And here Paul provides the answer. How do we do that? It's through divine blood atonement. Divine blood atonement. It's through the cross. Stott, uh, John Stott helpfully, I think, walks us through this. Uh, just a, a, a three or four questions here. First of all, why is propitiation necessary? Because the, the, this is can get confusing. The pagan idea of God, it, uh, of the gods, is that the gods are, are bad-tempered and they're subject to mood swings and you just never know how they're going to react and they're always angry all the, all the time. That's not what we believe about our God. We believe that our God is a holy God. Amen. He's right, He's true, He's just in every way. He's not unpredictable. Our God is not flying off the handle in His anger. He has, rather, He is holy and right and, and just in His wrath. And He has told us multiple times what He will do to sin and to sinners. Uh, secondly, who does the propitiating? This is important as well because in pagan worship, the, the worshiper was the one who did the propitiating. Uh, we've offended the gods, and so therefore we need something to placate them. But the Christian answer is not this at all, because we have said from the beginning that we have no means whatsoever to placate this holy God. 
You cannot just do it by your good works. You cannot just start living well and doing some good things and serving your neighbor and then somehow appease the wrath of God. You, it, it will not work. It cannot work. We are told this all throughout the New Testament. But rather, God in His amazing love presented His own Son as the sacrifice. God did this. Stott notes this, the love, the idea, the purpose, the initiative, the action, and the gift were all God's. <laughs> it's true. Third, third, how is propitiation accomplished? How does this take place? What is the sacrifice? Again, if we were uh, in pagan worship, you would bribe the gods. You would bring them like sweet, sweet fruits and vegetables, and you would make that your offering to God and hope that he would see that and placate. It would placate his anger. You would turn his anger away. I know where your mind is going, uh, perhaps. Uh, what about the Old Testament sacrificial system then? Uh, some, some, some would say that. I, I would say to you, just in short, we, we could go deeper in this, but, but it was an entirely different system because the thought with the Old Testament sacrifices, Leviticus 17, 11, uh, is that God Himself was giving the Israelites the sacrifices. And that's true when we think about Christian propitiation. For God gave His own Son to die for us. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's, out of God's own love, He initiated this amazing sacrifice for us to appease His own wrath. That sounds strange, you said. No, it's not strange. We just sang about it a few moments ago. You realize that, don't you? You realize the great hymn? We sang it. You, you, maybe you didn't catch on to it that, that we sang at the, the, the time. Till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. That's propitiation. We believe it. What a glorious truth. How does God justify the ungodly? How can God be both merciful and just at the same time? He can't just overlook sins. Here's what He did. He placed them all on Jesus Christ for your sake and mine. Cranfield writes this, God, because in His mercy, He willed to forgive sinful men and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously. That is, without any way of condoning their sin, purpose to direct his own very self in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved. Jesus was the wrath-removing sacrifice for us. So in, in Christ, in the cross, we have both, right? We have redemption, which speaks of Christ redeeming us out of the bondage of sin. And then we have propitiation, which speaks of Christ delivering us from God, really. Delivering us from the wrath of God. Absorbing it on Himself so that we could be justified by God. Notice one more word. Briefly, I can tell you're getting tired. Your mind's getting tired. My mind's getting tired. Whew. In Christ, this is an easier, easier word, God has demonstrated His justice. Or you could put slash righteousness beside that. Either way. And that's what Paul says, verse 25. This, all of this, what we're talking about, this was to show 
God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is an important point, and, and, and Paul actually has been speaking of this, of this, in the text, of this public demonstration of the righteousness of God. You may, have, you may have missed it, but if you look back through it again, verse 21, what, what is the point? Right from the get-go, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested, right? Verse 21, the end, the prophets have bore witness to it. It's demonstrating, it's showing it. Verse uh, 25, God has put forward that's the phrase, put forward Jesus as a sacrifice. And here, verses 25 and 26, to show, to demonstrate God's righteousness. So in other words, the cross of Christ was a demonstration, not just accomplishing our propitiation and our redemption, but it was to demonstrate that God is a righteous God. It was to show it from the very beginning. Uh, notice uh, verse 26 says that, that, that God could be both, you, you see it there? God could be both just and justifier. He could be both of those things. How God could rightly punish sins and yet forgive the sinner at the same time. The cross. It's to demonstrate the cross of Christ. This was to show God's righteousness. Now just quickly, uh, just that phrase there that he says God had passed over former sins. What is that talking about there? It's kind of an odd uh, phrase. I think Paul is referring there to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's talking about then the Old Testament. Ligon Duncan explains it like this. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system calls into question the justice and righteousness of God if there's no real divine sacrifice offered by Christ. Now, why would he say that? Uh, he would say it like this because Hebrews 10.4 tells us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I mean, that one verse just sort of, if that's true, why were they doing all of that in the Old Testament? That can't, if that can't bring about redemption, if that can't bring about propitiation, appeasing, turning God's wrath away, why in the world would God command them to do that? Was God simply overlooking all of their sins during that time? Was God unjust in saving people like Abraham and David and others? No, he says. He says, in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It wasn't because he was unrighteous, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. How is he showing it in the present time? In Jesus Christ, in the cross, so that God may, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The point of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was really the one thing that was to point to Jesus Christ as the atonement for our sins. In Christ alone, church. That's where we stand, amen? In Christ alone. In Christ alone, there's redemption. In Christ alone, alone, there's propitiation. There's no other way. In Christ alone, there is demonstration. The righteousness of God. We'll close with this. In 1915, B.B. Warfield gave a, a, a kind of a sermon to the incoming class 
at uh, Princeton Seminary. And in it, he talked about redemption. This is 1915. He talked about redemption being one of the most precious words in the Christian vocabulary. And yet he confessed at the end of his sermon that it, this seemed to be changing because precious words like this were, were being lost. They were being set aside. That was 1915 he said this. He said this, It is sad to witness the death of any worthy thing, even of a worthy word. And worthy words do die like any other worthy thing if we don't take care of them. I hope you will determine, he said, that God helping you, you will not let them die, these precious words. If any are on your part, can preserve them in life and vigor. But then he said this. He said, but the dying of the words is not the saddest thing that we see here. The saddest thing is the dying of the hearts of men, of the things for which the word stands. The real thing for you to settle in your minds, therefore, is whether Christ is truly redeemer to you. And whether you find an actual redemption in him. Do you realize that Christ is your ransomer? has actually shed His blood for you as your ransom. Do you realize that your salvation has been bought, bought at a tremendous price, at the price of nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus, the Holy One of God? Do you realize that this Christ, who has thus shed His blood for you, is Himself your God? That's so true, isn't it? We need to cling to these precious words and keep them in our vocabulary as Christians because of how important they are. But even more importantly than that is the truth behind them. This is our salvation, church. Do you realize these things? Are you putting your trust in Christ alone? He is the only way. Father, thank you uh, for these words, though uh, somewhat uh, difficult. We thank you for them. Uh, for the precious meaning that they have in our hearts and lives. And I pray that even as we've talked about them today, that that precious meaning would grow more and more and uh, that it would you would transform us through them uh, to worship you, to give you glory and honor, to live for you and to proclaim this wonderful redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. We give this time to you now as a response for those that need to respond to you, perhaps trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior today, we pray that you would work in their hearts. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we, our hearts, be renewed and rekindled in love for you as we worship you for the things that you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.